Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome, guys, to another episode of Dealmaker Diaries. Today we have with us Mrs. Vina Jetty. She's the founding partner of Five Funds, a unique commercial real estate firm that specializes in curating conservative opportunities for investors. Vina brings a dynamic perspective to targeting, acquiring, managing, and operating assets using best practices combined with cutting edge technologies. Her professional expertise includes driving corporate strategy and business development opportunities. After graduating from the University of Illinois at Chicago with a degree in finance at 20 years old, she pursued her passion for real estate. Fina has over a decade of real estate experience and over $1 billion plus in real estate assets over her career in both the startup world as well as the corporate world. Because of her diverse background, she is often a panelist and speaker for various podcasts, global conferences, and radio shows. Five Funds is the vision of an investor-centric firm coupled with proven best practices coming together. The firm was established to create space for investors to rely on carefully planned projects with client experience being at the forefront of their mission. Any project with Vibe name on it can be trusted to have gone through a rigorous metric standards before approval. So let's give Fina a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. Hey, Vina, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on. So, um, Viva, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what you do and uh, why you started your fund? Yeah, so I am the founder of a company called Vive Funds. I'm based out of Dallas, Texas, and I'm a large multifamily owner operator. Across my portfolio, I've transacted on just over $600 million of assets. Uh, we focus on Class B value-add assets in Florida, Georgia, Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Arizona. I started our company. So I actually come from a real estate family. So my mom was a very successful real estate investor. And she had a very successful portfolio. Both of my parents retired early from her portfolio. Uh, and so I kind of took what they did and I tried to kind of level it up and scale it up to the next um, level of business. And so that's how I really got into multifamily was to get to that kind of scale. And I really like this asset class. It has the best risk reward ratio. And so that's why I've just focused down and um, narrowed my niche within multifamily itself. Okay. And um, so that's interesting. What was it about um, what your parents did that made you interested in that? Because I know a lot of kids are the last thing they want to do is do what their parents did. So yeah. what, what about it grabs your interest or culture? Yes. I did go through that phase. Um, so I graduated from undergrad when I was 20 with my degree in finance. And, you know, my mom thought I'd come work for the family business. And 
I was 20 with a degree. So I said, no, like I'm going, I'm going to do something radically different and I'm going to, you know, not do anything related to this. And so I went and I worked in corporate real estate and I ended up, you know, working for a lot of the big shops. I got trained at some of the best in the world. And then in 2012, I left Tishman Spire and started investing for myself. But I think what really drew me to it was a couple of reasons. One, it's very tax efficient. Uh, two, multifamily specifically is a very conservative or relatively low risk um, sector within real estate. So it has the highest sharp ratio, which basically means that the it has the lowest amount of risk for the highest amount of reward within real estate itself. And the returns generated are very strong. And I thought that, well, people are always going to need somewhere to live. So it's a very scalable form of residential real estate where you can get to 100, 200, 1,000 units very quickly. Definitely, definitely. And um, so, I, and you say you're looking at mostly um, B-class properties. Um, what is your investment criteria outside of those when you're looking at investments with your, um, with your investors? Yeah, so we're typically looking for assets that are very strong, stabilized assets in stable markets. We want to see the tenant base be able to really support post-renovated rent assumptions. Uh, we want to make sure that our asset can withstand any kind of turbulence in the market like we saw with COVID. So we're looking for areas that have really high job growth, that have very high incomes for the average median income. We pretty much want to see a tenant profile that it's, we're kind of the last stop on the way to home ownership. So they care about their credit. They're less likely to be affected by being out for two weeks with COVID, for example. Uh, they have savings. They are they take care of the units. So that's kind of what we look for in the tenant base. And then the market, of course, is just that high growth area, sustainable areas, areas where we're seeing a lot of migration patterns moving to. Okay. And um, are there specific regions you typically look at or are, there, are you just looking for wherever there's a deal and the numbers make sense? No. So we are very, very laser focused. So we only underwrite deals within our buy box or our criteria. So it has to be above 200 units. It has to be in one of our core markets, which are Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Arizona. Um, we are looking at a retarget for 2020. So as that shifts, we'll underwrite only in those markets that we know and that we're very familiar with. Uh, we only underwrite if the vintage is 1980s and newer. And even right now with the way pricing is and where cap rates are, we are looking at more like 1990s and early 2000s vintage. So if it doesn't hit all of those boxes, we don't even look at the deal or underwrite it. Okay. And to play on that underwriting theme, um, what, what kind of trends are you seeing with underwriting right now? Yeah. Um, so in the value-add space, we're seeing a lot of different trends. Um, I will say our underwriting is probably a little bit more on the conservative side. So we're less likely to make those aggressive assumptions. But generally speaking, some of the things that we've started changing, or at least including in our underwriting metrics, are uh, increased contingencies for construction costs, uh, increased time period for construction, 
are we've started increasing our taxes and insurance. You know, those are two that should always go up, but we've started paying a little bit more uh, closer attention to that because we're starting to see a really big movement in insurance, especially um, with property taxes. We're seeing a rise in property values. So it's natural to assume that property taxes are going to go up significantly in line with that. Uh, we also are looking at increased payroll costs because now it's you know a little more expensive to get uh, people to work as leasing managers or maintenance uh, crews. So we're making all of those adjustments to our underwriting. We also are underwriting to more ex- more conservative exit cap rates. Um, so we don't assume that cap rates are going to stay here forever. We don't assume that they're going to go down. We actually assume an expansion on our cap rate um, as we're underwriting the deal. Okay. And there's also a few topics I wanted to brush with you. Um, talking about equity, how are you guys usually funding your equity into deals? Yeah. So right now we are entirely raising private equity through retail capital. So typically it's going to be high net worth investors writing a check of, you know, anywhere from 50,000, 100,000. Some of our investors write million dollar checks. So it really just depends. But anywhere from 50,000 on up is how we raise our capital. Okay. And what do, what are your investors, when you're talking to your investors or I don't want to say recruited investors, but when you're looking at investors who want to invest in your type of deals, what are, what are they usually articulating that they want to see what kind of returns are they usually looking for or are expecting? Yes. Yeah, so from the assets we go into, because they're a little bit more stabilized, they're a little bit lower risk. Um, we're looking at anywhere from six to 8% cash on cash is probably pretty standard for what we'll see across the five-year planned hold. Our average annualized return, once we exit the deal and realize the value add, anywhere from like 14 to 16%. Uh, we're seeing IRRs coming in anywhere from 12 to 15%. These are all net to investors. So that's generally what we're seeing. Um, it doesn't mean that every deal will be like that. Of course, it's deal dependent. Uh, we like to under promise and over deliver. So a lot of our investors will invest with the expectation of us hitting pro forma at you know, 12, 13% IRR. And we may be able to actually deliver much higher than that. It just depends on where we are in the market cycle and how the deal is performing. Okay, and upon your exit, what kind of multipliers are you guys usually seeing? (laughs) Well, right now, real estate is in a very interesting position because it's doing very, very well. So the thing about equity multipliers is generally the longer you hold it, the higher your equity multiple will be, whereas your IRR metric is time dependent. So from an IRR perspective, uh, the last deal that we exited was at around a 24% IRR. Um, The equity multiple on that was closer to like 1.7X on the equity. Mm -hmm. And that was over a little over a three-year hold period. Okay. Okay. Very good. So when you, how are investors finding you or how are you finding your investors in most of your deals? Are you, do you pretty much have a base where now when you get a deal, it's just pretty much, you can, you can fill that deal pretty quickly or are you networking a lot, finding new investors consistently? Yeah. I, so I'm always networking. I always like to meet new investors and new LPs. Um, but Generally speaking, we do have a pretty solid base of investors. So our last couple of deals, you know, we had to raise about 30 million in equity 
within a 40 to six week time period. Um, so we typically, we get a lot of referrals from current investors. All, most of our current investors, about 80% are in two or more deals with us. So they repeat invest with us. We have that relationship and we really care about the relationship with our LP. Um, and then, you know, as they have good experiences, they introduce their friends and family. So generally we do go to a wait list on our deals, but we always try to accommodate new investors into the deal so that we can help more investors realize the opportunities that we have on the table. Okay. So what advice would you give to high income earners looking to invest in real estate with a, with a, with a firm like yours? Yeah. Um, so I think the first, first thing and foremost thing is vet your sponsor, know who you're investing with, know why you're investing with them. Um, the second thing I would say is you are not going to find a sponsor where every deal that they have is going to be a good fit for you or every deal that comes across your desk isn't necessarily going to be a good fit. So make sure that you are choosing deals that really work for your portfolio. Know who you are as an investor, because our investments are on the more conservative side. We co-invest with our LPs and we are the largest as sponsors. We're the largest investors into our own deals. So if your investment criteria or your investment goals don't align with ours, it's probably not going to be a good fit. If you're looking to, for example, double your money in a year or two years, I'm not going to put that kind of deal in front of you because we just don't underwrite that high risk of a deal. But if you are looking for, you know, a steady, stabilized return, if you're looking for a sponsor that really focuses on downside protection, then something that we have does make sense. So know who you are as an investor and find the sponsors that work for you in that regard. And you don't need to have like 30 different sponsors you invest with. You need one, maybe two or three that have deals that you know you can trust the sponsor and you know you can invest into those deals. Okay, and so I'm sure as you know, as I know as well, despite all the performers projections and underwriting we do, sometimes things just go sideways. They do. How, um, how do you usually communicate that to your investors when things aren't going well? Yeah, I'm actually glad you asked this question because this has been a lot of our strategy for 2022 um, is we've increased, even when things are going well, we've actually increased our touch points with our investors. Um, so generally speaking, when on a normal day, right, and normal, everything's going well, everything's going great even, um, we, we over-communicate with our investors. So we tend to send out a text, we will email, we will um, update our portal. We send out more communication than is probably necessary. When things are not going well, um, we increase that communication. And when we think we're communicating too much, we increase it a little bit more because um, what investors want to know is they want to know that you're on top of it. They want to know you're paying attention. They want to know you're dealing with it. They want to know the plan because they feel unsure and they need that reassurance. And sometimes it's as simple as, listen, COVID has been crazy. None of us knew to expect it. It's kind of a black swan event. We don't know what's going to happen. Here's what we're doing right now. Here's how we're staying on top of it. And here's how we plan to manage X, Y, and Z. And I think that that gives investors a sense of confidence in you as the sponsor when things aren't going right. Okay, excellent. 
And so let's say I'm a, I'm a new investor. I've never invested in a syndication before, and I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm interested in investing. What, what questions should I be asking you? Yeah. Um, so I think first and foremost it is around um, the sponsor's history, background, experience level. Um, the second thing I always ask sponsors is who makes the decisions? Um, are you part of the decision team or were you brought on board just to raise capital, right? I really care about who is in the deal. I also tend to shy away from deals where I see like 30 different sponsors on it because then I don't know who's really running the show or making the decisions. Uh, but that's like a personal preference for me. Um, I also look at the um, the investment from the sponsor team. So I want to know how much are the sponsors investing into the deal? Because if you don't believe in the deal, why should I believe in the deal? So I want us both to have skin in the game. Um, I also look to on the sponsor team, who is doing this full time and who is doing this as like a side hustle, right? Because I want someone who's looking after my money full time. I don't want someone who is doing this just for a few hours a day or a week. Um, I think that there's so much that could go wrong if you're not paying attention or on top of your investments. Um, I also like to ask sponsors when I'm investing as an LP about the business plan. So I take a really deep dive into, okay, we think we can increase market rent by $100. Okay, why do you think that? And I want to hear an answer that makes sense. So when you're asking questions as an LP, you might not always know what the right answer is, but a lot of the business plan should be based around common sense. So if you wouldn't, if you were making let's say the median income is $50,000, right? If you're making $50,000 a year and you wouldn't pay $2,000 for rent, then someone whose business plan is to increase the rent $2,000 a month is probably not that realistic. Um, so I think that those are all really important things to ask when you're vetting sponsors, vetting deals. Um, but for me, it's more about who the sponsor is than it is even about the deal. I, I don't mind if I take slightly lower returns from a solid and confident sponsor than going into a deal that has high projections and maybe would put my principal at risk. Okay, and um, with you guys, are, is it the, is your GP, are you using the same GP with all of your deals? Your team is pretty consistent with all the deals you do or does your GP vary a little bit with different sponsor members? Um, so we establish a new entity for every deal. Um, that's more for the asset protection side than anything else. And to make sure we're not commingling multiple assets or investors that are not in one asset into another asset. But um, from a team membership standpoint, um, it's typically myself and one other co-sponsor. Um, and both of us, we've been working together. She and I have partnered on a whole bunch of deals at this point. And so uh, typically we kind of rinse and repeat the same structure over and over where we just co-sponsor deals together. Um, we're JV partnership. Okay. And, and as far as finding your deals, how, how are you finding most of your deals? Are they off market or you have great relationships with brokers who bring them to you? How are you getting those on your desk? Yeah, right now there's not a whole lot transacting off market. Um, sometimes we'll get kind of like the early marketing or the soft marketing, but usually it's broker relationships. They're the ones putting deals in front of us. And they're the ones who are really going to bat for us when we're in the best and final round two. And, you know, 
letting the seller know that we are very easy to work with. We always close. We're not going to come back and retrade or be difficult. So usually it's the brokers that are going to bat for us. So we have great relationships with them. Okay. All right, Vina. So let's jump into the lightning round and see what's um, okay. see what makes you tick behind the scenes. Okay. All right. So what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Yeah. So I think the one book that I read that I remember is like my youngest memory of finance and personal finance was the millionaire next door. My parents made me read it when I was like 14 and I hated it because I was like, this is boring. (laughs) I don't care about any of this. Uh, but it actually really looking back, it really shaped me into where I ended up going in my future. And I have reread it, um, a couple times now. And I think it's just a really good, solid fundamental book. And I think it's a good book for anybody, um, whether you're investing in these types of assets or not to read, because it gives you a very good solid foundation of, you know, the keeping up with the Joneses mentality, and it can kind of keep you a little more grounded. Definitely. Okay. And how is a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Oh gosh, there's so many failures. I've failed so many times over and over and over, and I'm sure there'll be another one tomorrow. Um, for me, uh, the way I look at failures is I actually always spend time and sometimes I'll call like a team meeting or a team huddle if it's something significant and we'll review what went wrong, how we can do it better, what we're going to put in place to prevent it from happening again. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't even say it's necessarily like failures, they're mistakes and they're lessons. And so we've always turned those into how we can be better. So I think one of them was with regards to when COVID hit, um, there was a lot of unknowns about how we were going to communicate to investors. Were investors going to panic if we didn't know what was going on? What I discovered pretty early on, but I wish I had done it even a couple months earlier was saying like, I don't know, is a perfectly reasonable answer in situations where you really just don't know. And I thought investors would want us to have all the answers. And of course it would have been nice if we did, but they understood that this was unprecedented and we didn't know what was going to happen. So I think that I would have changed that. So now, you know, just even in our communication strategy for 2020, um, that has changed since, you know, learning that small lesson, but there's a lot of lessons we learn every day. We learn something new about how we can be better. Definitely. Okay. And if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? You know, I saw this question when you sent it to me and I, I've been trying to think of what the answer is because this is a hard <laughs> question. I don't know. I, I vacillate between it being something family oriented because the whole reason I do this is for my family. I have, you know, twin toddlers. So I think maybe it would be something family oriented and not really business oriented. Okay. Yeah. And it's, I mean, yeah, it's just, uh, it doesn't have to be something huge. I mean, it could be a phrase or just the same, but yeah, that's usually what Okay, and what what is your favorite place to think big, Vina? Where do you, where do you usually go when you want to think big? I feel like I do that everywhere. Um, I think that's <laughs> probably like one of my strengths, maybe faults. I don't know. It depends who you're asking. Um, but I like to imagine the possibilities. So usually it's, it's not so much where I go, it's more who I'm talking to. So I always try to surround myself with people who force me to expand my vision. So, you know, whether it's my family or my JV partner or 
friends, like my friend circle. I always around people that make me want to and believe that we can do more. Awesome. Okay. And what are some bad recommendations you hear in your day to day for people new to capital raising and syndications? Oh, gosh, I hear a lot of bad, not necessarily bad recommendations, but I see a lot of mistakes that I think are being made. Um, the vast, vast majority of those go back to the underwriting and the assumptions. So anybody who's new to capital raising, know your numbers, know why you're making certain assumptions, know why your assumptions make sense or don't make sense, and really understand why when you say they're conservative, are they really conservative? Why are they conservative? Um, for me, I don't necessarily mind if someone has a different thought process, but I want to understand that there is some kind of method to their thought process and there's some kind of backup to how they arrived at this conclusion. And, you know, there's many roads that lead to Rome. So the way we do it isn't always the best or only way. It's just one way to do it. Um, so I think know your numbers know how to talk to investors. So I see, I because I'm an LP in a lot of deals, I get a lot of investors that will, uh, or sorry, uh, sponsors that'll reach out to me to invest in their deals. And they'll say, hi, I have a deal in XYZ and state. Do you want to invest in it? I'm like, this is not even remotely helpful to let me make a decision. So I think that having like a short pitch that you can send somebody a professional offering memorandum, those are very important. So that way, all they need to do is an, as an investor, they look at the critical deal points, say, okay, yeah, this is something I would look at, or I want to know more about, let's set up a call. So I think that that's really important, understanding your investor avatar. Okay. And Fina, what have you become better at saying no to? Oh, everything, everything. <laughs> I say no to everything. Uh, I, you know, now, unless it is a part of our fundamental business operation or an ancillary business to multifamily investments, we don't do it, at least actively. Um, we only invest in it passively if it's outside of our wheelhouse or it's not ancillary to what we do. And I'm very laser focused about that. So much so that if someone sent, someone sent me a great deal the other day in um, California, in the LA area, and it looked awesome. I would love to have bought it in, you know, a different life I might have, or in a different part of the cycle I might have, but we didn't even underwrite it because it's just outside of our core requirements and we don't ever vacillate from that. Okay. Okay. And last but not least, this is the one I think goes the deepest. What important truth very few people agree with you on. Okay, so I am kind of at this point in the market cycle, I'm a little bit more on the pessimistic side than I am on the optimistic side. So there's a lot of sponsors right now that think that real estate is going to forever and ever and ever go up and do well. And I was, I was in real estate in the last crash. So I remember what happened and I don't think we're going to see a crash. But I think we might see like, you know, either a pullback or a slowdown or maybe a decline in the market because we cannot continue having cap rates compressed forever. So my position is that you should be underwriting deals to the worst market conditions. You should be looking to protect principal right now versus trying to 
chase those gains that we've seen these last few years. So I think we're at that point where it's time to switch the flip. We've already started resetting investor expectations. We've started lowering our projections. And I think that this is really the time to do it. I see a lot of sponsors still, you know, going out with very high return projections, which is great if you can make it happen, but what if you can't? So I think that's where I'm at in today's market. Okay. Yeah. And I would, I would second that. I think that's very sound. Yeah. Okay. Great, Vina. So before we hop off, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, they want to invest with you, what's the, what's the best way to find you? Yeah, so you can go to my website. It's vivefunds.com, V-I-V-E-F-U-N-D-S.com. Um, I have an investor portal there. You can log in, see any current offerings we have. Uh, and you can find me on social media. I'm under Vina Jetty, V-E-E-N-A-J-E-T-T-I on pretty much all social media forums. So, Okay, I'll do it. I'll put that in, um, in the profile as well. All right, Venus. So thanks so much. This was really helpful. I think the investors and um, listeners will really get a lot out of this. So thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. You have a great day. You too. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.